Welcome to the Classic City Church Podcast. For up-to-date information and ways to get involved, please visit us at classiccity.org. Second Timothy, excuse me, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. And we are doing a, a sermon series over the church. And we're looking at what it is, why it's important, and how we're to be involved with it. And we looked at some first week, we looked at how the church is basically heaven's rebellion against hell. What a great thing. That's what the church is. Jesus said the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against the church. So the church is heaven's rebellion against hell on earth. Um, the second thing we found out is the church is God's people pursuing God's purposes. The third thing we found out last week about a church is a church is a dwelling, is a dwelling where God lives by the Holy Spirit. When we have a church gathering, God is dwelling. We believe God is, is this is a very, very special place where God dwells and God inhabits and God moves. And today I want to look at this passage. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where again, Paul describes what a church is. And look at verse 14. Paul writes and he says, And I hope to come to you soon. I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of and the foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world. And he was taken up into glory. Now, what is happening here in this letter Paul is writing to Timothy? It's a Timothy was a young man, and he was pastoring the church that had grown and had developed in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the largest, most prominent cities in the ancient world. And you can read about the beginning of the church there in Acts chapter 19. And Paul went in there and preached. A lot happened, uh, a lot of opposition, a lot of success. Uh, and and in, eventually, they, they, they became a real epicenter for spreading the gospel throughout Asia. And so Paul is writing to him, and if you read verse 3 of the letter, chapter 1, when Paul introduces the thing, he tells him, hey, look, man, I'm wanting to get over there as soon as I can, but I'm being delayed. I might be delayed even longer. So until I get there, I want you to straighten up some bad teaching that's going on in verse 3. Of chapter one. And he talks about what this bad teaching is. Basically, there were a, a group of guys that were just getting into minutiae. They were making a big deal out of myths and genealogies and things like that. And he's just going, Oh, you know, come on. That's not, not, that's not what we need to be about. We don't need to be obsessing with minor things and spending our time on those things. You know, and, and this is something you see a lot in Christianity. There'll be some minor side issue that'll crop up that will become a big issue. You know, this week, I don't know if you've heard of the, the, the uh, series, The Chosen. Anybody heard that or looked at that? What a great, great thing. It's been really good, been really popular. Um, it was amazing. I was, I've 
have a friend who's not a believer. I was with him. Uh, I see him about every few months and been trying to share with him. He goes, man, I've been watching The Chosen. I've watched both seasons twice. I was like, wow, you know, it's, a, it's getting very popular. In fact, I heard Joe Rogan on his podcast was talking about The Chosen. I was like, wow, that's kind of interesting. So The Chosen is a thing. It's popular. It's a really well-done thing. But now there's a group of pastors that are going about, and they are protesting The Chosen because it embellishes stories that are in the Bible. Now, it doesn't contradict them. It just, in telling a story, it gives you a background, which... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't give you what you have to do if you're going to do a movie like that. And so this is the big issue now. There are guys that are just, you know, really deeply concerned, and that's what they're doing. And Paul's talking about this kind of a thing. Like, really? That's what you're going to spend hours debating and fussing over? You know, it's just kind of silly stuff. And so he's, he's like going, that's minutia. And if you read on, he was concerned about guys that were being lax when it came to sexual morality. He was concerned about guys that misunderstood the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. We would say the Old Testament and the New Testament. He was also concerned about guys that were into sort of a fake pseudo-spirituality where they were believing that self-denial and sort of odd, weird mistreatment of the body and neglecting, you know, sexual relations in marriage and not eating certain foods was actually making you more spiritual. And Paul was saying, that's ah, just stupid. Don't do that. And so he's, he's basically correcting those things. But the way he does it is not necessarily by just attacking overly every single point of the opposition. What he wants to do, and he wants Timothy to do, is lay out a what we'd call an orthodox Christianity. A Christianity that is solid, that's true, that's built upon essential truths, that makes a big deal out of big issues and doesn't get caught up in small, petty uh, discussions about things that don't really matter. And so that's what he's doing. And so what he does in, in these books, First and Second Timothy and in the book of Titus, because he has a, a similar concern, over and over again, he will lay out certain truths that are fundamental and solid and essential to the Christian faith. One of the unique things about Christianity when it came out uh, and it began to emerge in the ancient world is the pagans who the Christians were converting and reaching, their idea of religion did not have a, a what we call a corpus of truth. They didn't have doctrine. They didn't have a structure of belief. To them, religion was just sort of a, a it was superstition. They would, they would, you know, appeal to gods to make sure nothing bad happened to them or something good happened to them. They, gods were sort of their, their genies that they made wishes to. Or they asked not to hurt them or harm them. And so Christianity came in and it had a structure. It taught truth. And it, it believed that truth is something that is. It's not something you decide for yourself. There was a truth to it and there was ethics that followed it. And so you can look at these books, Timothy and Titus, and you can see some of the ideas of what truths matter. They would communicate these truths to one another before there was a Bible in a form called creeds and hymns. They would just say creeds over and over again. We talked about the, we 
did the Apostles' Creed this morning, and our inspiration is an example of, of an ancient creed. But in early Christianity, they would do these short, pithy, concise statements that would communicate, that would just sort of pack a lot of truth and a lot of crucial theology in a quick statement. Or they would have a hymn, they would have a song they would sing that would be packed with theology, particularly about Christ. And, and they would sing them to each other. That's how they learned in a society with no books. They had, they, they had very adept memories and they would learn that way. And so if you, if you look, there's several of these all throughout them. You know, one is in, uh, in, second, in 1 Timothy 2. Paul talks about how there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, as a payment for all people. That's a crucial belief in Christianity. One God, one go-between. There's only one that connects God to man. It's Jesus. But that connection is for all people. It's for everybody. It's kind of an exclusivity, Christ alone. But there's an inclusivity. That salvation can touch everybody. And that's a core Christian belief. You know, what, the, what we believe about the Word of God is in there. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. We, we believe that. We believe Christ alone. We believe Scripture alone is, is God's inspired Word. If you go through there, he'll talk about grace in Titus chapter 3. He talks about how he saved us, not because of righteous things we did, but he saved us by his own mercy and grace. We understand in Christianity that salvation is not a product of our works. It's not a partnership between God's grace and our works. It is God doing all the work. That's what grace is. God is, the, is, he is solely responsible for our salvation. And then we read, if we keep reading in Titus, it talks about the grace of God, how it's appeared, but it instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live righteously, sensibly, and godly in this present age. So grace, not only does it save us, but it also instructs us, it inspires us to live a holy life. And you'll see this all throughout these books of Timothy and Titus, where Paul's saying, look, I want you to teach the real thing. I want you to teach them the truth. Because if people have the truth, it's, it's a... Uh, uh, repellent to false teaching and to bad emphasis uh, that, that was, was, were going around. So we get to it, and we get to this passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and Paul is actually quoting one of these hymns, one of these uh, creeds that was uh, part of the ancient church's way of understanding theology and truth. And in verse 14, he talks about, you know, I want to come to you uh, I'm, if I'm delayed, and he goes on in verse 15, and he talks about what the church is in verse 15. And he uses two metaphors to describe the church. One is he says the church is God's household. God's household. Now, when you and I hear that, we think, oh, yeah, we're God's family. And that is true, but a household was a little broader than a family. Back in those days, a household would have been where a, a, a group of people would have lived. It would have been the servants. It would have been the slaves. It would have been the workers. It could have been some extended family. But it basically was 
everybody who was involved in a family business. Everybody involved in a family business. And he says, you guys are part of God's family business. And in a business, you know what's critical for your employees to do, the people that are working, your family, the people involved with it? You know, they need to represent the values and the beliefs of that business. Isn't that true? Nothing worse than you're running a company and you want to be big on customer service. You want to have a certain ethic and a certain ethos that appeals to people and attracts people, communicates well who you are, and somebody does the exact opposite of what you want. You ever had that happen? This leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth about the business. It's poorly represented. Paul's saying, look, realize who you are. You're God's household. You represent him. You know, and what we can do, and I want to show you this. We, we, one of our core values of our church, one of our mission statements, is the idea of being authentic. You know, our mission statement is to honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purpose. Well, what does it mean to live authentically? Well, I want to try to illustrate this. Some of you may have seen this before. Oh, great, it broke. That's not authentic. That's a terrible rubber band. Okay, I did not be so aggressive here. All right, here's something we all face in our life. You ever had this happen to you? Where you're living a certain way, and the Bible says you ought to live another way? Anybody ever have that? Oh, maybe every now and then, huh? You, you, you go, well, you know, I'm living this way. I know this Bible says this. And see what happens. There's a tension between what you and I say we believe and what we actually are doing. And here's what happens. That tension will not last forever. One of two things happen. Either we decide the truth is going to come to where I am. The truth is going to align with me. And you'll hear this phrase in, in our society a lot. Oh, that's your truth. And that, I want to say that's your stupidity. <laughs> There's no such thing as your truth. You're, you and I are simple, dumb human beings. Like, no, what, what happens though, when, when I, if I say I'm Christian, I say Jesus is Lord of my life. He's number one. And I realize my life's not aligned with him. You know what I do? I align myself with him. That's being authentic. That is the core of living authentically as a Christian. And this is what Paul is saying here. Hey, you're God's household. Align, align, align. You know, in your personal life, what would happen if you were listening to a preacher and you saw him on the street and he was teach, treating somebody terrible, a waiter in a restaurant, treating him terrible? What if he was walked into a strip club? What if he was drunk? Would you listen to that guy anymore? I hope not. But what happens when the people around us, they look at our lives and they, say, they see inconsistencies? Do you think they're going to respect what we say about Christ? They aren't. This is what Paul's getting at. I want you to be real. I want you to be genuine. You're God's household. I want you to represent what we're doing appropriately. And then he goes on here, and he says in, the, in, the, in that, the end of that verse, the church is not only is it God's household, it's the pillar and foundation of the truth. 
Basically, it is a structure. It's the framework of the truth. And then he goes on in verse 16. He begins to describe this truth that we're the framework of. He says, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. So he's talking about what he calls a great mystery. Now, he doesn't mean great as in the sense it is hard to figure out. But he means great in terms of it is important. It is crucial. It is, imp- it is, it is a, a essential, precious truth. The mystery. And what does he mean by a mystery? It's simply this. He's talking about how Christ and the story of Christ and the story of Israel's Messiah was hidden in the Old Testament. That if, if you look and you read the Old Testament you, it, before Christ, you'd go, What's eh, something there about the Messiah? What's he going to do? What's he? And it would, it would lead you to all kind of thoughts and ideas. There's all kind of opinions. But then when Christ came and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, people were able to look back in the Old Testament and go, that's what that meant. That's what that meant. That's what that meant. And Paul says, this is a great mystery. It is utterly significant. It is of utter importance, the truth that was hidden in the Old Testament about Christ and that is revealed to us and that we, we now know. And then he goes on and as he, he continues and, and he begins to just articulate what this mystery is. He quotes one of these hymns and poems they sang in the early church. And he says this, he appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up into glory. Let's look real quickly at what he means, verse by verse, sentence by sentence, in that passage. What does it mean that he appeared in the flesh? Simply is saying that, that in Christ, God became a human being. Years ago, there was a Russian astronaut who, who flew, and he was the first astronaut in space, and they asked him, what did he see up there? He goes, well, I've been flying up here and I haven't seen God anywhere. And they asked a great Christian thinker, writer, C.S. Lewis about it. And he said, well, of course you wouldn't. Because the, the, God, it's the gap between God and us is not spatial. He's not living on the moon and looking down on earth. The, the difference is a difference in realm. And the way you would see God, the way you'd have to see God would be the way, or encounter God, would be the way Hamlet would encounter Shakespeare. Hamlet wouldn't know there was a Shakespeare. He wouldn't know he had a creator, and he wouldn't know what he was like if he thought he did. He's just a character on a page. Shakespeare would have to write himself as a character into that story. And this is what God did in, as, and through Jesus. He wrote himself. He's, God. He's the character of God in the story of humanity. That's who he is. He appeared. He was manifested. He became. And then he goes on in the flesh. But then he says, the next one, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? The vindication is talking about the resurrection. That he became a human being, but more than that, He was vindicated. He was proven right by the resurrection. Let you know what this would be like, and I hope this isn't too unpleasant an example. I couldn't think of a better one. But 
Remember back to the presidential election in 2020? I don't know about you, but as I was watching that go on, it was during COVID, it made COVID seem good. You know, it was like, you know, terrible thing. Everybody disliked one of the candidates. Everybody did. I don't have a preference. I'm just telling you, everybody disliked one of the candidates. Think about the candidate you dislike. Think about that guy. Why you disliked him. Why you didn't like him on the campaign trail. What if during the campaign that candidate was assassinated? He was buried. They had a funeral for him. And then three days later, he rose from the dead and was back on the campaign trail. What would I tell you what I would think? I think, oh my God, I am not just wrong. I am so wrong. I was so wrong. And, I, and if you were, the, the other group would say, oh, we were so right. This, this is what the resurrection was. It was the vindication of Jesus. It was saying, this is, he is exactly who he said he was. He is exactly uh, what he is, he is the one that the Old Testament was writing about. It, it is the affirmation that he is who he is. He was revealed. He was vindicated. He was resurrected. Then he goes on here, and it says, this is a really cool one. I love how he throws this in. He says, he was beheld. He was seen by angels. Some versions say beheld by angels. And the, the implication there in the, in, in the language is the idea that he was gawked at by angels. He was awed that angels looked at him in utter wonder. Here's what they're thinking. They've seen God do incredible things. God created a world. God created a universe. They look at, probably look at, you know, dark, what, what are the stars, that, are those big things? Oh, I'm drawing a blank. Black holes. They look at black holes and go, oh my goodness, can you, you know, you see those pictures of the, of the, the cosmic clouds and all that stuff, and they just are going, wow, our our God's incredible. They just gawk at him all the time. But they never gawked at him the way they gawked at him when he humbled himself and he went low and he became a human. That was to them the most incredible thing they had ever seen God do. Go low. Become a human. The greater becoming you know, less for the sake of the lesser. They had never... It believed he would do anything like that. Beheld by angels. There's a um, great philosopher, Kierkegaard, once talked about the gap between humanity and God. He said the, gap between, the greatest gap between God and man is not that he's the creator and we're his creation, although that's a great gap. It's not that he is holy and we are sinful, although it's a great gap. He said the greatest gap is this. God in Christ does what no human in, their, in our overweening pride would ever do. He lowered himself and died for us. The angels saw this 
And they just were awed and wonder and utter amazement at what he had done. Then he goes on here and it talks about how he was preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world. The Old Testament, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it talks about how the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Two verses later in verse 4, it continues to talk about the Messiah. It says, he will, he will shepherd the people in the strength of the Lord, and his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, there's a conversation God's having with the Messiah. Then he says, it is too small a thing for you just to bring back the tribes of Israel. I'm going to point you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. And over and over and over again, the Old Testament talks about how when Messiah is coming, one of the results is going to be nations are going to begin to come into the kingdom of God. They're going to begin to worship the God of Israel because of him. We see that today. It is utter inarguable that this has happened. You and I are probably proof of that. Most of us are probably Gentiles from all of who knows where. But we're worshiping the God that was the God of Israel through him. The, the, and he speaks of the incredible growth of Christianity. You know, in 200 years, the first 200 years of Christianity, uh, it was 111, 111 of those years, Christians were viciously persecuted by the Roman Empire. Viciously. Yet in 200 years, 18% of the Roman Empire, some think more, was com were committed Christians. And I don't mean Christians like American Christians. <laughs> These are Christians that were willing to die for what they believed. In 200 years, Christian apologist Tertullian was writing to an emperor and trying to persuade him about some laws. And he goes, man, we fill your cities. We are all over the place. We're going to be the majority real soon. You know, we, we are growing. The, the rapid, incredible, extraordinary growth of Christianity is an incredible thing. Within 300 years, over 60% of the Roman Empire became Christian. And this is what he's talking about, this incredible, powerful surge. And then he ends up with this last thing about him. He was taken up into glory. He is eternally what matters he is enthroned in eternity. That's who he is. So when we talk about the church being the pillar and the support of the truth, what is it saying right there? It says, here's what the church is to protect. This is what it's to nourish. This is what it's to cultivate. Two things. The wonder of Christ and the advancement of his gospel. That's what we're to be about. The utter awesome wonder of Jesus, God in the flesh, resurrected, awed by angels, and the advancement of his message in the whole world. Preached in the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. That's what a church is. Pillar, and support, of, and I love how Paul says it, the truth. A lot of things are true, but the peak, the apex of truth 
is how God revealed himself in Christ, in the man Jesus, and how he's revealing himself in history. That is the truth we are to be the framework of, the pillar, and the support of. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful passage that is put here in this beautiful song that they sang in the 2,000 years ago to describe Jesus and to proclaim his worth and his wonder. And how that is what we need to be about as the church. About having a sense of wonder and awe about who he is. And to proclaim this truth effectively and clearly and with integrity in the world around us. We pray you give us grace to be this and to uh, carry this out and to represent this well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.